Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for this opportunity to, to talk about you. And Father, I pray that above all else that my thoughts and words will be pleasing to you and bring glory to you. Um, send your Holy Spirit in a mighty way, we pray. Thank you, Father. Amen. <clears throat> the two military wives stood at the end of the runway waiting for the planes to take off. See, in the military, especially if you live on the base, the wives join a support group. They, they become a support for each other because their husbands are off training or even at war, and they keep the home fires burning. They're on a different front line, but it's a front line just the same. And the two wives, the co-pilot's wife and the pilot's wife, were at the end of the runway with their small children running around. This was an especially heavy mission because the husbands were gonna be gone for three months. And on top of that, it was a radio silent mission, which means that until they reached their designated destination, there was no contact. So the wives knew that at least for 24 hours, they wouldn't hear anything from their husbands. They had made plans to spend the day together. They were gonna spend the night at the co-pilot wife's house, and that way they could be there together until they heard from their husbands. And their husbands had told them, we're in the first plane. The first plane in the lineup, the first plane that you see on the runway, the first plane to take off, that's our plane. And they had told their kids, look, the first plane, daddy's in the first plane, we have gotta watch for the first plane. Finally, they heard the roar of the engines at the other end of the runway as the planes were preparing to take off. And they saw the plane coming. Look, there's Daddy, there's Daddy. He's in the plane, wave to Daddy. And the plane came as it gained speed. It finally took off. It started to get some altitude up in the air. And oh, it was a beautiful day to fly. Not a cloud in the sky. Azure blue was the word that comes to mind. It was gorgeous. And as they were looking, watching that plane go up against that blue backdrop, suddenly everything changed. That blue turned to a brilliant red and orange as that plane and all the crew members exploded into a million pieces. And the wives stood at the end of the runway and watched in stark terror as their lives stopped right then and there. It didn't take very long before they heard the cries of their children and they knew they had to tend to them. So they took them and they went to the co-pilot's house and they spent that day going through whatever routine they could go through to put one foot in front of the other, to feed the kids, to bathe the kids, to put the kids to bed. And every time there was a pause, the pilot's wife would run to the window and she would stand at the window and look, waiting for that military vehicle to, push up, to pull up and those two uniformed men to get out to come knock on the door and let them know that their husbands were gone. As night fell, the co-pilot's wife went into her own bedroom. She needed to grieve in her own solitude. And the pilot's wife sat vigil at that window, waiting, waiting, waiting. In the morning when the sun came up, the kids woke up, they got them up, they fed them, still with that heaviness of not knowing what they knew they knew. When time had passed enough that it was appropriate, the pilot's wife 
called the wife of the squadron commander. And she said, can you tell me anything? Nobody's telling us anything, and we need to know what's going on. She said, I have nothing I can tell you. It would all be speculation, and I just don't know. The best I can tell you is turn the radio on. If they announce anything, it will be on the radio. So the wives ran, and they turned the radio on, and they sat there and listened to the co-pilot's wife running between the window and the radio, and the window and the radio, and still no one came. After a while later in the morning, an announcement came over the radio, and the names that were announced were not their husbands. You see, at the last minute, there had been a change. I don't know whether it was because there was a mechanical failure or if it was a weather issue or whatever it was, but they had changed the rotation, and their husbands were actually the third plane back, but they didn't know that. So they get this news, this news that their husbands are okay. And my mom tells me that that's when she fell apart. Now I wanna stop for just a minute. We went out Memorial Day for breakfast. We took my dad out and someone there at the restaurant was kind enough to pay, not only for his breakfast, but they paid for my mother's breakfast too. And I'm so grateful for that. If you have an opportunity to see a military family, please thank them both for their service. Thank the children for their service because they are working just as hard. It's just on a different front line. I've listened to that story many, many times. It's one of my mom's favorite stories to tell. Um, I think it's because it made such a big impact on her. And in listening to her tell this story, I realized that her story started with a perfectly blissful day and an event happened that stopped her dead in her tracks. And then she spent a period of time waiting and wondering, trying to figure out what to do, doing the work of everyday thing. Gotta feed, gotta sleep, gotta bathe. And then when it ended, that's when she fell apart. And I was thinking about the pandemic and I realized that it ran the same course for me. You see, it was a perfectly wonderful world, and an event happened that stopped us dead in our tracks. And how long have we spent wondering, you know, when is it gonna end? When do we go back to work? What do we need to do? Do we take the vaccine, don't we? All of these things that have been pressing on us to try and figure out, and guess what? We are almost to the end. I mean, look, we're here. Can I get an amen? So my question is, is this where we fall apart? And I'd like to propose to you that it doesn't have to be. <clears throat> that there are things that we can do to manage this so that we don't fall apart. For me, this has been a case of, shall we say, burnout. And one of the best authors that I have read has written a book, his name is Wayne Cordero. He's written a book called Leading on Empty. <clears throat> now this is a book for leaders. It's written by a pastor who went through severe burnout. But the principles in this book apply to us here today, to how we can live, what we can do to battle that falling apart. And he suggests that there are three things that we need to do. And one is to recharge. I like the word replenish. The second is to reflect. Now, well, let me go back to recharge for a minute. One of the things that happens when we recharge is that we can look at what's going on with us. 
So for me, I look at the things that people have expressed that they're experiencing, headaches, lack of sleep, nausea, other intestinal issues, um, brain fog. And for me, the worst has been a loss of words. I can't remember words. I try to remember and say, oh, what's that word, that word that means? I don't know if any of you find yourself doing that. But in that moment of recharge, we can look at these things and realize where we are. The second one is reflect. Reflecting is really important because that's where we look at what has happened. That's where we look at the collateral beauty that might have come from this pandemic that we've just gone through or any other experience that's unexpected. For me, the collateral beauty is that I connected more with my children. We've played games on Zoom. We've watched movies together on Zoom. We've spent hours just sitting and talking. They both live on the West Coast. Gary and I live on the East Coast. That's not gonna change. So that is something that for us has been a really wonderful thing. The last step is restructure. That's where we look at what has happened and we say, what do we wanna pick up and take with us? Or what do we wanna put down and leave alone? What from our past life do we wanna carry with us or what do we wanna say, hey, I don't want that anymore. So for me, it's the same thing. I wanna keep the Zoom going. I wanna keep that face-to-face connection with my kids so I don't have to wait to see their faces until they come to visit. The other thing that I've learned is, apparently, toilet paper is a pretty valuable commodity. (laughs) Who knew? So this lets me know, okay, that's something I can do to prepare should something like this happen again, but it also lets me know that I don't know. Things may change and we don't know. But before we can do any of those things, we have to stop. And that's the hard part. We wanna plow through, especially if we're feeling that falling apart thing. We wanna plow through and get back to normal. I mean, think about what happened on New Year's 2021. It's like everybody was just, you know, I'm done with 2020, it's gone. I don't even wanna, I don't even wanna think about 2020. And I had a friend that I sent her a calendar at the beginning of 2020 and it had funny little sayings on it. And she sent it back to me at the end of the year and she had cut those sayings off from the dates. So the dates were on a little strip and the sayings were in another box. And she said, Candy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take those dates and I want you to go out in your backyard and one by one, I want you to burn them so that you can let go of 2020. And I thought about it and I thought, that is a really cool idea. But the more that I thought about doing it, the more that I realized I didn't want to throw away 2020 because there are lessons to be learned and nothing is a wasted experience if we learn a lesson from it. There's an advertisement that first came out in 1929. This one is from 1937. Now I am by no means telling y'all to go drink Coca-Cola, but what I am saying to you is their advertising campaign was appropriate. And I think back to 1939 or even 1927, I would not say that their life was as hurried as ours is today, and yet their slogan is the pause that refreshes. 
All of those people are doing wonderfully important things, but it is the pause that brings us the change. In the book, The Pause Principle, Kevin Cashman says, pausing allows us to gain fresh perspective and transcend immediacies. I love that, transcend immediacies. Whatever is happening with the pause, we can deal with it. It is a conscious, intentional process of stepping back to reflect and deliberate and then lead forward with greater clarity and impact. The pause that refreshes. Who knew an advertisement from Coca-Cola was biblical? But it is. It is. Matthew 14, 13. It says, as soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to remote areas to be alone. If you read through the Gospels, there are multiple times that it talks about Jesus pulling away to be alone, pulling away to be alone. And, and, and interestingly, the vast majority of them are in nature. He pulls away to the grain fields. He pulls away multiple times to the mountainside. He pulls away to the sea. In fact, I only read one verse that said that he went to a house. Every other time, he's in nature. That's significant. Psalms 46.10 says, Surrender your anxiety, be still, and realize that I am God. Be still. We can't recharge. We can't reflect. We can't restructure until we are still. The message paraphrase says, step out of the traffic. I like that because that's where we are. We get in the flow. I want to push past this. I want to go on. Exodus 14, 14 says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only, say it with me, to be still. There it is again. Matthew 11, 28, 29, are you weary carrying a heavy burden? Come to me, I will refresh your life for I am your oasis. You will find refreshment and rest in me. So the question is, <clears throat> how fast do you burn through an oasis? Maybe a more appropriate question would be, how painful is it to sit still? and be in that oasis. There's a really wonderful pastor named John Mark Comer, and he wrote an excellent resource called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. There are some ladies that I, I attend a book club with, and we are reading this book, and I gotta be honest with you, ironically, the hardest thing to do is to not hurry through the book. It's like we wanna hurry and get to the end see what we need to do to get rid of this hurry that is so prevalent in our lives. And Pastor Comer shared a statistic that is kind of rattling. In 2000, the attention span of most humans was 12 seconds. 15 years later, in 2015, it had dropped to 8.25 seconds. Scientists share with us that the attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. We're losing to a goldfish. <clears throat> but here's the really, really neat thing. We have something those goldfish don't have. We have the ability to come back, to pull ourselves back, 
to bring ourselves back so we can take that 8.25 seconds, pull ourselves back and do another 8.25 seconds, pull ourselves back and do another 8.25 seconds. We can make it so that we can be still. I don't want to lose to a goldfish. Psalm 3.3 says, But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head. You might be wondering why I put that verse in here. My husband and I used to work in youth ministries. He was a boys dean for about 18 years at two different schools, and we ended his last, the, the last of his career as a dean at Highland View Academy in Maryland. We used to attend youth specialties meetings, and youth specialties, um, that was a meeting that you could go to. It was usually a long weekend, and it, they were there to replenish youth pastors and those who worked in youth ministries. So it was a time for us to really replenish, to recharge, to be still. One year we were going, and it came on the tail end of us going through uh, the loss of all of our possessions in a house fire. The boys' dean's apartment caught fire while we were, at, ironically, down here in Florida, and uh, we lost all of our possessions. For me, it was a falling apart time. We went to youth specialties and we're standing there listening to the leaders of the praise team. Their name, it was a band named Starfield. And they were singing a song called Cry of My Heart. And this is the chorus. For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. I always sat in the part of the auditorium so I could watch the American Sign Language interpreter because I loved the way that she would interpret the music. It was just so moving and added such a visual component to the hearing of God that, that was present. And when it came to the part of you are the lifter of my head, she took her hand and she pulled her head up like this. And it hit me like a gut punch. And God immediately put a memory into my brain. You see, when our girls were little, they were three and four years old, my best friend Penny came down. We lived over by what at that time was called Florida Hospital East. My husband worked nights at Florida Hospital South. And so he was asleep in his room, and the girls, I kept sending them outside, Go play, on the, go play on the swing set. Penny bought them this beautiful swing set. Go play on the swing set. Go play on the swing set. So they were outside playing, and all of a sudden, I heard a horrible scream. You know that feeling that you never want to get as a parent when you know something's drastically wrong and you don't know what it is? I went tearing outside, and my oldest daughter, Michelle, was running towards me, and she said, Mommy, Mommy, Elisa fell, Elisa fell. And here's Elisa laying on the ground, and she's kicking at her leg. She just kept kicking at her shin. And I got close enough to look at her, and there's a baseball-sized lump on her leg. I knew something was terribly wrong. 
She was hysterical. She had her eyes screwed tight shut and tears were just streaming down her face. And I kept saying, honey, honey, look at mommy, look at mommy, look at me. And she wouldn't. She was so caught up in the situation, in the pain, in what was happening, the immediacy of her leg. I couldn't get her attention. So I got down on her level and I put my hands on either side of her cheek and I lifted her head up and I said, sweetie, look at mommy. Look at mommy. Finally, she opened her eyes, and for a split second, it was silent. For a split second, it was still. And then the sobs came back, but this time they weren't hysterical. They were resigned. They were the cry of somebody that leans in and says, okay, it's okay now. It's okay. I'm with somebody that's going to make a difference. I'm with somebody that can help me. I'm with somebody that loves me. And when I heard that song and that thought came to my mind, I realized what God was saying to me was, look at me. I want to make eye contact with you. If you will look at me, if you will be still long enough to look at me, then you'll know everything's going to be okay. Recharge. Reflect restructure. We have a work to do now, a work that requires us to stop and evaluate what's going on around us, to reflect on what is the good that we want to take with us, what we want to leave behind, how we want our life to change because of what we have gone through. And restructure is putting those changes into place. What do I need to change about my life? But before we can do any of that, what is required is that we stop, that we lean into that pause, that pause that refreshes, that we are still long enough that we can feel God's presence, we can feel him lifting our head, and we can hear him say, look at me, look at me. Oh, may our prayer ever, ever be, Lord, I look to you.